Thank you all. Uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, just by show of hands, who was here for the last one? Some people. And then who's new? Who's like PGY1? Okay. Nice to meet you all. I'll give you a little bit of my, my background before we get started. Uh, so I'm a hemonc doctor. I work at UCSF. I actually practice mostly at the general. You'll find me there every Monday in the hematology, hemalignancy clinic. And I attend on service there maybe about three months a year. And then my background is I'm from like Northwest Indiana, not far from Notre Dame. I did my medical school at University of Chicago, my residency at Northwestern in internal medicine. Then I went to DC for a few years and I did hemonc at the National Institutes of Health. Then I was on the faculty in Oregon for uh, about five years uh, at OHSU. And then I joined the faculty here in 2020 at UCSF. So I still do some clinical work. We do some research and I teach a bunch of classes. And if anyone's interested in any of that, you can come talk to me afterwards because we got some good classes in the spring on like publishing and presenting research. Okay, so last time I talked about evidence, appraisal, how to keep up. Uh, that video, and the reason this camera's here, is that I put it on YouTube. So anyone who missed it last time wants to check it out, you can go find it. Um, we talked about Entresto, we talked about some other things. This time I thought I would cover different material because I expected a lot of you would be back again. I'm gonna talk about some great and crazy things we do in medicine maybe get into one cancer screening test, maybe get into some drugs, um, and let's see if this interests you. We also have a long block, so I might do some, pause, take questions, and do the rest. But I don't think we'll go over 90 minutes or so. That already sounds long. All right, <clears throat> so we do a lot of great things in medicine. I always feel like I come in and then I say, oh, what we think is good isn't so good. And you may get the wrong idea that I'm a pessimist about what we do. I th I'm an optimist about what we do. I think in the course of human civilization, the last 30 or 40 years has probably been the absolute best in terms of medicine. The number of things we do that extend life, make people live longer, feel better, is really unprecedented. We should be lucky to live in the certain time that we're living in. So I think we gotta start by talking about what we do that's great. But then I wanna say we also do a lot of crazy things and we do a lot of really crazy things, make no sense. And I'm gonna talk about those things as well and why I think they're crazy. All right, so I think particularly in my field, some of the best things we do in medicine, particularly in oncology, is we provide comfort to people who need it. I think we often don't acknowledge, but just being a person in the room to hear somebody's concerns, give them reassurance, give them guidance, validate those concerns, that's a very important task of being a doctor. We provide guidance, we tell people what to expect, we tell people prognosis, what might come down the road. That's just as important. I think those human side of medicine is maybe even the best part of what we do. And occasionally, we actually give good drugs in internal medicine. We love to prescribe drugs. We give some good drugs. I'll give you one example from oncology because I think it tells a really interesting story. So this is a figure that came out of Sweden maybe a few years ago. And it tells the story of a woman who is 55 years old who was diagnosed with a certain type of cancer that's called chronic myeloid leukemia, CML. All right, what you see here is a few things. One. Let's just take this year, 1974. A 55-year-old woman in Sweden in 1974 who was told she had chronic myeloid leukemia had a life expectancy shown in the yellow line. And it's about, how long you say that is? Three to four years? You know, kind of a short life expectancy. A same 55-year-old woman who didn't get the CML diagnosis in 1974 in Sweden lived about 27 years. That kind of makes sense. That's the life expectancy of somebody who made it to the age of 55. We often think about life expectancy, but that's of an 18-year-old or somebody at birth. But this is the life expectancy of somebody who made it to 55, which is actually a little bit longer than the average life expectancy. 
the life expectancy of a 90-year-old maybe four years or something like that, you know? It's not the average life expectancy of the population. Okay, so this gap between the yellow and the blue, that's the years of life lost. That's how many years of life someone is losing just because they got this diagnosis of CML. As you can see, that's a big years of life lost, and that's a very tragic story. So if you got this diagnosis in 74, you're gonna be devastated because you're not gonna live to the age of 75 or 80. <clears throat> Fast forward to 2010, and you can see that gap is almost entirely closed. There is no longer a years of life lost gap from this disease, and that's really good news. This is what we wanna see in oncology. This is what we're hoping to see, that we can take a condition where you're losing decades of life now you have nearly normal life expectancy. Some people call this a cure. I wouldn't call it a cure because to me a cure means you could stop taking the therapy. If you have to keep taking the therapy in order to live the full life, I might call it a functional cure, but uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit different than what people mean by cure, I think, which is a fixed course of therapy. Now, what was that therapy? That was imatinib, debuted in 2001 in Sweden. And that one drug has almost single-handedly closed these years of life lost. Okay. Now, the x-axis here is year of diagnosis, the year that the doctor told you you had CML. And I put on the arrow, I put the arrow where imatinib takes uh, came out. But you can see the years of life loss starts closing in the years just before it comes out. So does anyone know why the gap is closing in the years right before it comes out? What are some explanations for that? Yes. Brilliant question. He's saying that maybe some people were exposed to imatinib before it had full marketing approval. And I would tell you that indeed the phase one study was published in New England Journal in 99, and there were some clinical trials in 2000. However, those were run in Finland, the United States, nothing in Sweden, so nothing to explain this. The next thing I'd say is like, the number of people who get put on clinical trials is like 3% of all people. This is the statistic for the entire population of Sweden, so you'd have to give a lot of them imatinib to move it up. Any other guesses? That's a good guess though. That's how you're supposed to think. Lead time, go on, explain. I'm not sure if you've already accounted for this, but if there is more awareness and people are being diagnosed early and earlier um, in the course of their disease progression. Yes, so, okay. Between 1974 and 1990, you see that yellow line goes up, and there's not really any good therapies debuted in that time period. Why does the yellow line go up? And if you look at the slope, 1970, 1990, I think it's a little bit faster than the blue slope. The blue slope goes up over time because all Western, oh well, all developed societies have improvements in life expectancy over time, except the US the last five years. We're on the downswing, but everyone else is doing better. Okay, but I think from 70 to 1990, that is a combination of better supportive care, better antifungals, better antibiotics, better, and lead time. What does he mean by lead time? If you do more CBCs in a population, you're gonna find more CML. You're gonna find it in somebody six months before you otherwise would have found it if you're doing more CBCs. So I do think that accounts for the change from 70 to 1990. But look at that change abrupt, 97, 98, 99. It's really steep. Something's going on. Look at the axis and think about it for a second. Well, you had, like, you had a few years of life expectancy, even without a matinib. So if it debuted in 2001 and you started them, but they had like that three years or four years of life before they were expected to die yes. without treatment. Yes. And that would explain, like, if all of a sudden all those people got cured, then you have like a steep. Yes. Do people see what he's saying? It's very smart. It's a very smart point. I always ask this to people, and I'm always impressed when somebody gets it. You got it. So the answer is, imagine you were diagnosed in 1998, okay? Now, some of those women are going to die before 2001, but not all of them. 
And a woman diagnosed in 1998 who lived to 2001 just by chance, maybe it's 40%, 60%, there's some fraction, because he knows the life expectancy is not zero, still a few years. So somebody diagnosed in 1998 lives three years, maybe about 50% of people. That woman starts taking imatinib, her life expectancy is pulled up so high, it actually improves the average for all the women of her cohort. That's exactly what you see here. Actually, it's such a good drug, it's pulling up life expectancy for people diagnosed in years prior to its approval. That's what you see in this figure. Well done. But even great drugs are costly. It's a great drug, but it's not a deal. In fact, this is a figure we made for Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology about, gosh, almost five, six years ago now. And what it shows you is the blue line shows the cost of one month of an anti-cancer drug in this country. Now it's up to $20,000 per month of therapy for a new debuting drug. And you can see over time from 75 to like 1999, it was like less than $1,000 a month. 1999 was paclitaxel, the first cancer drug that made a billion dollars the first cancer blockbuster. People didn't think you could have a cancer blockbuster. They thought blockbusters could only happen for high cholesterol and heartburn because you needed a big patient population. But now in oncology, every single cancer drug's a blockbuster. They all earn over a billion dollars. Well, at least in life cycle earnings, not always in a year. The red line shows the median monthly household income adjusted for inflation. And what you really see is a very sad story, which is that the wages of the average person in this country have absolutely stagnated, but the amount of money we spend on healthcare is just crushing us. And so we spend more of our wages at, on healthcare than at any other time. But the story is even more complicated because in the years after imatinib came out, this was the market share of people from 2001 to 2017. The light blue is showing you how many people take imatinib. Then something happens in 06, 07, 08, two new drugs come out, nilotinib and desatinib. Those are second generation TKIs. And they come out and they say, you know what? We lower the BCR able number in the bloodstream more than imatinib, so we're better, right? But they don't make you live longer. They don't actually make you feel better, but they change a number that the doctor can look at in the, in the laboratory value. And so people start prescribing them. They come out and they get, they get all the doctors to say, hey, we lower that number even more. That number's gotta be important. And you can see by 2017, they got the majority of the market share. But generic imatinib comes on the market in 2016, and now generic imatinib is like $100 a month, thanks to Mark Cuban. And generic imatinib may have some inroads, like you can see there are people prescribing generic imatinib instead of real imatinib, but you're never gonna have cost savings because people have already switched to second generation TKIs. And this story happens over and over in oncology, and those second generation are just more expensive than the first. And then one more thing I'm showing you here is, the companies, every year they ratchet up the prices, it's like the frog in the pot of water. If you turn up the heat slowly, it won't jump out. And you can see that this drug debuted at $30,000 a year. This is the monthly price. Over time, they cranked up the price of imatinib. This is far more than inflation. And by 2015, at peak, imatinib was almost $10,000 a month. Then when generic imatinib enters, you can see in 2017, generic imatinib cost more than double brand name imatinib back in the day, you know? So this is a pattern we see over and over with pharmaceutical pricing, which, Many people think generics will save us. These are reasons why I'm skeptical. Generics may not save us. All right. But overall, I think the story is good. I mean, we pay a lot of money, but I'm happy to pay money for things that really work. And I think this is an example of one of the many things we do in medicine that are absolutely life-saving. ST elevation, myocardial infarction, you take them to the cath lab within 90 minutes, no one's gonna argue with you. That's a life-saving intervention. You know, you take somebody with uh, septic shock and you give them antibiotics, amazing, you know? Somebody who would otherwise be, on, otherwise be dead, you put them on dialysis, you know, you can get many life years from somebody. And then we have a number of drugs in heart failure, you know, 
not Entresto in my opinion, but the Flozins, the float, not Entresto in my opinion, but the Flozins are very good. They improve survival in all the studies. So I think we have a lot of things to be proud of in oncology, but we also do crazy things. We hype things too much. I'm going to talk about lung cancer screening, why I think that that's just a total fiasco. And I'm going to talk about some bad clinical trials. And you can stop me at any time if you have any questions. Okay, so after imatinib came out, I was excited about it. And everybody got interested in these tyrosine kinase inhibitor drugs, these cancer pills you take. And I'm sure you've been on service where you find Asian non-smoker female with lung cancer. People say, oh my gosh, we got a sequence for EGFR and ALK. And if we find that ALK, you got all these drugs. You got crizotinib and seritinib and electinib and brigatinib and lorlatinib and it's hard to pronounce them. But you got all these drugs and these drugs are like miracle drugs. And I was at the conference once and they said, that's a game changer. And I said, thanks for these drugs. The game has been changed for patients with this condition. This is a game changer. And you know, I always found that a little distasteful because I want the patient to tell me if they think the game has been changed, not the doctor was consulting for the company to tell me. I want the patient to tell me. So I did the same thing that the Swedes did for imatinib, and I took all these drugs, and I imagined a woman who took every single one of these drugs in sequence. And I did the exact same thing. So I'm gonna show you a figure of a woman diagnosed, a 55-year-old woman diagnosed with this lung cancer over all those years. You can see the years of life lost gap and how much we closed it with all these drugs. Okay, same figure, but I made this one. But it's actually pretty accurate, I think. Here's the result. What do you think? The drugs have changed the curve, you know? You take them all in a row, we got median survival now close to five years. But look at the gap, you know? It's still 20 plus years of life. So I wanna say, please don't go to the conference and tell me that this is a game changer when I have the 45-year-old woman in my clinic who brings her three children every time and I know that she's gonna be dead in five years or 10 years, if we're lucky, but that's still not 80 years, you know? She's still losing so many years of life. So I think we have to have perspective in oncology. Not everything is a miracle, a revolution, a game changer, you know? Imatinib was great. Some people tell me that, you know, you're a glass half empty person. I'm like, that's actually not true. I'm an optimist, I'm always glass half full, but it's not half full, it's like 10% full, you know? Let's have some perspective, we have to be accurate here. Still big gap. Then I heard people say in oncology, they said, when the patient comes in and they have the ALK rearranged lung cancer, they say, that's good news. You know, it could be worse. You could have the regular old lung cancer that the treatments aren't so good for. So they say, you got EGFR mutation, that's good news. You know, ALK, good news, that's a good thing. And I said, are you sure it's a good thing? Is it good? I don't like that word, you know? It's good to have ALK rearranged lung cancer? Are you sure? Maybe you lost your perspective. So David Benjamin was a UC Irvine Hemonk fellow. And we said, I asked him to do something that people don't often do. Here's what people often do. People often say, let's look at lung cancer. Those two green bars are regular old smoking-induced lung cancer for the most part, you know? And the green bars tell you how many years you get if you take all the drugs in a row, okay? So this is the cumulative median duration of response. You don't need to know exactly what it means, but you just need to know it's about how long you live on average if you take all the drugs in a row. And those two green bars tell you smoking-related lung cancer. And now we're talking about maybe, you know, it's over a year you know, maybe 18 months, maybe 20 months, something like that. We're getting, it's, it's getting better than it was before. It used to always be less than a year. And then below you see all of those driver mutations that are good, good to have, they tell me, good to have ALK. And you can see ALK is like three and a half, four years, you know, the median duration of response. Um, so what they're saying is it's better, you know, it's better than regular old smoking-induced lung cancer, so it's good when you have a patient in clinic who's got that mutation. 
But the part of the story they leave out is that, is it the same person who's getting it? Because I just told you, young, female, Asian, non-smoker, that's the phenotype of these mutations. It's not older, smoker, uh, long time, you know, man. It's not, it's often younger, female. So what I asked him to do was to pull, the blue bar here shows you the median age in which you get the disease. The orange shows you the benefit of all the drugs in a row. And then that is US life expectancy, and that's the gap. And so the part of the story that I think oncologists miss is the gap is even bigger for ALK. I mean, yes, you do better when you take all the ALK drugs, but look how many years of life you're losing compared to the person who has smoke-induced lung cancer. So I would never say it's a good thing that you had the mutation. I think it's a lamentable thing. And I think our drugs are a step forward. They're not a game changer. And we can't even restore life expectancy to somebody who gets lung cancer from smoking, let alone normal life expectancy. So I feel like perspective matters a lot. And, you know, I always feel feel terrible when you find a young person with lung cancer. I think it's some of the hardest things we do. Any young person with cancer that's not curable, I think it's one of the hardest things we do in oncology. It's hard when they're older too, but it's especially hard when they're younger, I think. All right. Now let's talk about lung cancer screening. Crazy things we do. I think it's crazy. I think it's crazy. And I think, and I'll show you why I think it's crazy, and then you'll see what you think. I'm going to go further. I'm going to say it's a bad idea. I don't even know why we debuted it. I, rem I, I was uh, in training when we did. When I started in medical school, 2005, it wasn't on the horizon. 2009, we had an NLST study, National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. It was a positive study, and that led to some movement in that direction. But it took a long time. It took a long time for USPSTF to endorse it, and later they extended the upper bound age to 80, beyond what they studied in the trial. It took a long time for different hospitals and universities to try to create programs to get these patients to undergo screening. And now I think it's been ramped up. We still have low utilization. Maybe 12% of smokers get lung cancer screening, but it's a lot higher than it was in 09. I think the evidence is extremely sobering. Let's look at the evidence. Oh, first I wanna point this out. I was on Twitter recently and somebody said, you know, this is somebody doing work in disparities. And they say, let's improve the uptake of screening for women and minorities with lung cancer. We're not doing enough CT screening. And to me, this is one of the ways in which disparities research falls short, which is the problem with lung cancer screening isn't that minorities don't get enough of it, it's that we're doing too much of it in anybody. I mean, it's, I don't think it's a good thing. So you can improve the disparity, but you're just gonna be doing more harm at a population level, in my opinion. So I think like the first question is, well, does it actually improve outcomes? Are you better off by doing it? Okay, here's what USPSTF says. If you're 50 to 80 and you got a 20 pack year smoking history and you quit or, 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 uh, or currently, or you quit in the last 15 years, they recommend screening USPSTF grade B. I guess it's not grade A because they've extrapolated the age and perhaps because one of the screening studies has some problems with it, which we'll talk about. Um, so they tell you to do it, and I think we've all been part of programs. We did a paper where we just pulled every single study. So I wanna point out a few things here. One, um, that not a single study takes people up to the age of 80. The National Lung Cancer Screening Trial stopped at 74. Nelson stopped at 74. Um, nobody goes up to 80, so I think that is a reach. And you have to always be careful when you change screening beyond what was studied in randomized studies. Now, some people want colonoscopy at 45, but the American College of Physicians says 50. They have a new guidance that says 50. 50 is the only thing that's been studied, at least for Flexig and FOBT in randomized studies. 45 is an extrapolation. And you can argue that there, is more, there are more young people who get, lung, who get colon cancer than before. Um, but the question is, do they benefit equally from screening, which is a very different question. 
So here, these are all the studies. If you put them in a pooled analysis, I want to show you the following. There are really two studies that drive the whole thing. This is lung cancer mortality. And those two studies are NLST and Nelson. And here's why. How many events are in those two studies? You see 470, 550 in the top line. And then, um, I can't see my mouse. Um, and then Nelson, 186 and 248. But there are many, many other studies that are very small. I mean, they randomized 1,600 people in, uh, in, in a lung, 2017. And you see the confidence intervals for all the studies. Most of them cross one. These are very small, sort of not very clear studies. But NLST is a huge study. Look how tight that confidence interval is. And Nelson is a huge study. Look how tight it is. And that's what's really driving the whole endpoint here. If you didn't have those two studies, you wouldn't have a significant result in this space. So everything is hinging on these two trials. Let's talk about the trials. One of the things I think we forget is what is the purpose of screening? The purpose of screening is really that you take a healthy person by definition because if they have a complaint, they have bloody stools or they have a coughing up blood, it's not a screening test, it's a diagnostic test to figure out why you're coughing up blood and losing weight. Screening is you take somebody who's healthy, they say, I don't feel fine. They may have risk factors, they may have been a smoker, and you extol them into the medical system. You bring them into the medical system, you say, I can make you better off. And the general premise is, how do you make somebody better off? Well, you gotta find cancer. You gotta find more cancer than you otherwise would without screening. If you didn't find more cancer, well then there's no way you, know, you can improve their outcome. Actually, if you, do, if you looked at self-breast examination in two randomized studies, they don't even find more cancer. They just find more benign lesions. So that's actually why it's discouraged. Um, you wanna find the cancer earlier and then cut it out. And presumably, if they had just waited, it would have spread and you couldn't cut it out. So you need what we call a differential treatment effect. In other words, treatment works really well early and it doesn't work so well late. Now, testicle cancer actually blew this paradigm out because in testicle cancer, if you have stage four cancer, it's met to the lungs. You know what the survival, sorry, stage three, actually, there is no stage four in testicle cancer. It's a trick because the survival is so good. The survival for metastatic testicle cancer is like 96%, you know, 97%. And then if you have localized testicle cancer, it's like 99%. But that difference is so little that screening programs don't make sense in testicle cancer. And actually, the USPSTF recommends, calls it USPSTF grade D, as in harms exceed benefits. They don't advise screening for testicle cancer with a self-testicle examination. Because in part, because every time you find a lump and it's not, and it's, and it's solid on, echo, on ultrasound, the next step is actually orchiectomy, it's not biopsy. So it's actually gonna lose a lot of testicles and not gonna improve survival. The second step is reduce disease-specific mortality. Lung cancer screening should lower the risk of dying of lung cancer. That's what that plot showed you. But the real question is, do you improve overall mortality? Do you live longer or live better as a result of that screening? And low-dose spiral CT supposedly achieved that outcome in the original study, and that's in part why people hang their hat on it. But to me, that's the real question, because what do patients care about? They don't care just about dying of lung cancer. They care about living longer for any reason or living better for any reason. So whether or not you get a colonoscopy or a mammography or a PSA, at the end of the day, we're talking about improving all-cause mortality. That's a real question. So let's look at the evidence. When the original trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, they had a press release, and the press release says, quote, there's strong evidence that shows that low-dose CT screening can reduce lung cancer and all-cause mortality. And the answer is, I, I made this a lot simpler. Okay. Let me pause one second. One of the limitations of this study is that the intervention arm is getting CT screened. Okay, that's what we recommend now. The control arm is getting x-rays. 
And that's a problem, actually, because the standard of care at the time was nothing. X-ray never proved benefit over nothing. And X-ray could potentially be harmful because you find things and you do biopsies that you otherwise would have left alone because the standard of care is not X-ray. And they picked that for sort of complicated historical reasons. But I think that's one of the things that really undermines this study. Having said that, let's just say for the sake of argument, X-ray is fine. I don't think so, but let's just say for the sake of argument, it's fine. Here were the results of the study. They took 26,000 people, and by here I mean treatment means CT screening, control means X-ray. And these are the number of lung cancer deaths, 356 and 443, okay? That's a difference of 87. That's a 19.6% reduction in lung cancer death, right? Then the non-lung cancer death, 1521 and 1557, a difference of 86, okay? And then the total death, 2000, 1877, a 6.1% reduction all death. That's the p-value that I just calculated for you. All right, so what's the takeaways here? Number one, there's a big difference in lung cancer related to death. There's a smaller difference in all-cause death, okay? It is significant. Um, another thing that's quite sobering is that in this group of people who are heavy smokers, you know, three quarters of the reasons they die is not lung cancer. You know, lung cancer is still not the, it's still not the majority of death. You know, look at that, the, the death is being driven by non-lung cancer, like heart attacks, strokes, other cancers, you know? Now, should CT screening for lung cancer reduce non-lung cancer death? Is that a real difference of 36 deaths or was that kind of a, a chance event? And at the time the study came out, I, I strongly felt it was a chance event, that this screening program couldn't have reduced deaths from non-lung cancer reasons. That doesn't make sense. And if you made that, if you just balanced that, if you just assumed that was a chance imbalance, you would find that the p-value is no longer significant for all-cause mortality. So at the time the study came out, I was suspicious that the all-cause mortality benefit, which is not the primary endpoint of the study, was being driven by statistical noise, a spurious, a chance de deviation of non-lung cancer death. That was my suspicion, and I argued that for years. In fact, in BMJ too. Now, I guess what we wanted to see was so many lung cancer deaths that even without any imbalance in off-target death, that there'd be a reduction in all-cause death. That's what we wanted to see. We didn't see that. Okay. Well, here's the update. Actually, they followed this trial out a few more years. Nobody knows this update. It's published in a very obscure journal. The same clinical study, they followed them out. They asked, do people live longer by doing lung cancer screening? And that's the relative risk and confidence interval. They span one, you know? It's just a null study. I mean, NLST does not show a reduction in all-cause death, as you can see there. All right. When somebody dies, how do you even, how do you know what killed him, you know? I think we think about it like it's so objective, but it's not always objective. Imagine I come in to the emergency room. Actually, imagine I'm found down at home, dead. You know, you, you won't, you, we don't even meet such the people who die at home, you know? But imagine I'm I, I come in, I'm, I look terrible, I look awful. I come to the ER, they don't know, am I septic? What's going on? I just look horrible, no, like my pulse is low. They draw my blood, my uh, hemoglobin is like seven, my platelets are 32, I look like I'm in DIC. And then they scan me, and then they find innumerable metastases. I'm just riddled with carcinoma. And let's say you stick a needle in it, and it's like adenocarcinoma poorly differentiated. Is it, was lung the primary or not? Was breast the primary or not? You know, I guess the point I wanna make is that adjudicating death is not so easy. And you can call something lung cancer death. I suspect some of those lung cancer deaths, if you really took modern techniques in genomics and applied them to the tissue, it might not even be lung cancer. It might be breast cancer. You know, poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma is very hard to tell apart. 
But once you've done these scans and you put people on these sorts of programs, you do an x-ray and you knew they had a node two years ago, you might attribute something as lung cancer that wasn't actually lung cancer, something called a sticky diagnosis bias. You know, like your knowledge of the situation may, may affect how you even code death. But all-cause mortality is a clean endpoint because you just see if you're alive or dead. It doesn't require the interpretation of the doctor or the health system. And that's, why, that's another reason why I prefer it. It's also the thing that people care about. Okay. So find cancer, reduce disease-specific mortality, improve overall mortality. These are the goals. Now let's look at the other study, Nelson. Here's Nelson's study. Nelson's study is billed as a positive trial because of that reduction in death from lung cancer, you see. 2.43 versus 3.18. And I think that these are absolute percentages. But if you look at death from other cancers, look at there's an imbalance the other way. You know, so is lung cancer screening lowering death from cancer? Or is it, are we merely coding deaths a little bit differently? There's always going to be some gray zone deaths disseminated adenocarcinoma. Was that lung primary or was that breast? Was that colon? And you know, we always use those markers, but they're always not perfect, trust me. I mean, we all, I don't know if, if any of you had the experience where you really don't know. You do all the markers and it's like carcinoma of unknown primary and they really don't know. And now look at all-cause mortality. It's just a wash. It's a total wash. Okay. And here's another way to look at it. This is Michael Brethauer, who's the Norwegian, who did the colonoscopy randomized trial called Nordic. Um, and uh, he has a paper in JAMA Internal Medicine where he takes all of the screening modalities. He pools the data from all of the available studies and he asks the effect on all-cause mortality. And he shows you how much life you're gaining or losing. And he puts it in terms of days of life, life expectancy. You remember imatinib giving you 20 years. Here we're talking about, you know, half a year at best, right? And he's showing you the confidence intervals. And I think this is pretty good that sigmoidoscopy is the best thing we do for colon cancer screening. In pooled analysis, it does improve all-cause mortality. And so that con that's pretty clear. But many of the other things we do, we have really no idea the net effect on how long you live. Same for mammograms, FOBT, colonoscopy. That's his own study, PSA and pooled analysis. And the upper bound of some of these things is very small. So look, now you can always say to me, you haven't proven that it doesn't work. And I'll say, I'll concede that that's true. It's very difficult to prove something doesn't work. In fact, it's, I think, impossible. But what I would say is at a minimum, imagine you tell the patients undergoing this, listen, you know, you could get the CT screening and come in and we could put you in this system and do that. I can't say for sure you're going to live longer. And actually in the Nelson trial, about 13% of people died, whether they did it or not. You want to do it. I think that will be a very different conversation than the way we do do it, which is, oh, you're a smoker, you're of age, let's just do it. We're gonna schedule it for next week. You know, so I think it, at a minimum, we should just have up honest conversations about the fact that there is massive uncertainty about effects on all-cause mortality. And we could be trading death. For instance, with PSA, you know, with all these cancers, there is something called overdiagnosis. There is somebody out there who you're finding cancer in and you put a needle in it and it looks histologically like cancer. It's invading the basement membrane. But the natural history of that was not going to be that it would kill you. It was going to be that it would not cause harm in the rest of your natural life. And there are many lines of evidence that show that that's the case. One is autopsy studies. Autopsy studies of men show prostate cancer increases with every decile, even when it doesn't kill you. Um, that's one piece of data. The other thing is, since the debut of mammographic screening campaigns, we find lots more, maybe 50% more breast cancer than we ever did, but there's been nearly no effect on the rate of presentation of distant breast cancer. 
you'd expect you find a lot of small lumps and cut them out, you should lower the number of people who present with de novo mets to the spine, but you don't. That's a little bit odd. And there's another elegant paper by Welsh where he looks at the size of the tumor, showing we find a lot more less than one centimeter tumors, but we still find the exact same number of five centimeter tumors as we've always found. How does that make sense? If you find a one centimeter tumor and cut it out, presumably in a few years, you will find less five centimeter tumors because you've removed them, but you don't see that. So I think like all these lines of evidence point to the fact that we treat many people who would otherwise just not be treated. And any harm they get from radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, is a harm that offsets any gain they're getting from screening, any gains the person we're quote unquote curing. And all-cause mortality balances those two in a way lung cancer death doesn't. All right, any questions here? Yes? Where is cervical cancer screening? Oh, okay, he didn't, he didn't do it because it has, I think, very few randomized studies measuring hard endpoints. Now, cervical cancer screening, I think many people do believe the Papanicola screen has been credited with like dramatic reductions in death from cervical cancer. Um, and I would say there are some randomized studies like the study by Shas 3 and stuff, but even with cervical cancer, I think there is concern of over-treatment. When I was started, I think even 18-year-olds were getting cervical cancer screening annually. Now they don't start it until what age? You know better than me. 25, 25, yeah. And, uh, and it's not annually, especially if you're HPV negative. What is it? Yeah, two to three to five years. And, and I suspect in the next 10 years, it's gonna be even spaced out more. Okay, and I, don't, and I think th this change is independent of Gardasil. I mean, these were independent changes. They were just, they were doing way too many, like cone removals of cervix and ablations. And I mean, they were medicalizing a lot of young girls who had lesions that probably were not going to cause them harm. And now they're backing away from that. But if the question is, could, should cervical cancer be on this thing? It should. We should have. Follow up? No follow up. Oh, uh, no, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Yes? Um, I have a question about the colonoscopy. Yeah. So can that data be perhaps skewed negatively in the sense that when you're getting a colonoscopy, you're perhaps seeing polyps that are, you can, I guess, like, how do I phrase this? Yeah, think about you're basically seeing polyps and kind of eliminating a diagnosis <laughs> before it even happens. Uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, good point. Okay, so the point you're making is that unlike other screening tests, colonoscopy is the one that's both screening and preventive because you're clipping polyps that could otherwise become cancer. Um, yes, so uh, you can look, Michael Bretthauer paper in Nordic, he actually has, initially there's an increase in colon cancer incidence because you, f you find all the cancers you otherwise would have found plus some, you clip some polyps and they're actually cancerous. So there's initially an increase, but then with time, there's actually a reduction in the incidence of colon cancer, and that's one of the endpoints of his study. And so he says that actually it's, it has a sort of preventive benefit. That's true, and I think that is a potential benefit of clipping polyps. Um, one question is, is colonoscopy better than sig sig sigmoidoscopy? We do colonoscopy in this country, but a lot of Europeans only do sigmoidoscopy, and we think a colonoscopy, uh, a sigmoidoscopy is like a mammogram of one breast and colonoscopy is a whole thing. But the difference is the right side and left side of the colon are different than the right and less left breast. Different mutations, different sequence, et cetera. But coming back to your point, let's say I reduce colon cancer incidence. With time, I should reduce colon cancer mortality. And with time, I should reduce, I should remove all cause mortality. 
Like that's, that should be a logical sequence. You clip the polyp, you don't get the colon cancer, you don't die of the colon cancer, then you don't die for any reason. So far in the, in the Nordic study, he has not yet established even a reduction in death from colon cancer. Thank you so much. He hasn't gotten the death from colon cancer. He has one more follow-up in about seven years. Um, okay, there's another criticism of that study. Not everyone who was told to have a colonoscopy did it. Only 40% did it. Well, if 100% do it, then it'll work better. That's the logic. Well, one of the countries that enrolled was Norway. They had 60%. They also didn't have a benefit in Norway. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> it's a test. Okay, that's one piece of data. The US is, in some surveys, in really good centers like Kaiser, which actually have the highest rates, it's like 60% of people do one of the colon cancer screening tests. Okay, so I think we can compare ourselves to Norway in that study. And then the third thing I would say is, <laughs> there's a statistical method to adjust for incomplete adherence. There's two methods. One is called per protocol, where you only look at the people who did it. That's a very flawed method. It actually kind of undoes randomization. There's another method called instrumental variable analysis. And we have a, published a paper on this um, magazine I run called Sensible Medicine, where they apply the instrumental variable analysis. It's also in the supplementary appendix of the Brett Hauer Nordic trial, and it shows that it's still a negative study, even if you had assumed everyone, if you scaled up the effect to 100% adherence. Okay. Now, people always ask me, like, what would I personally do? I guess for me, PSA, I never check, never check that on me. CT screen, I'm not a heavy smoker, but even if I were, I would never do that. Um, FOBT, no, oh, no thanks. Uh, colonoscopy, no not, no, not for me, actually. But a sigmoidoscopy may be the only thing I'd consider. At age 50, not 45. Okay, and then here's the point I want to make. We screen people who just want to be left alone. Okay, this is a real story that happened to me. I wrote about this in this magazine called Sensible Medicine. Um, I, I write, He's the, he was the most improbable 74-year-old. He was thin, real thin, partly because he was a smoker, but he wasn't an ordinary smoker. He had smoked three to four packs a day for most of his life. I think from when he was a teenager, he had between 100 and 200 pack years of smoking. 200 pack year smoker. And age had not slowed him. He was still smoking like four packs a day. He lived alone, he had no children. He just worked on his cars in his garage. He lived, this is in Oregon. You know, so he lives in rural Oregon, works on his cars, no relatives. The only thing he enjoys doing is smoking cigarettes and working on his car, you know? And uh, he came in to the doctor, and the doctor said, you're due for a colonoscopy. And they said, how do you do that? And then they told him how they did it. And he said, no, thank you. And then they said, you're due for a CT screening for lung cancer. And he said, how do you do that? And he's like, it's nothing. You just lay down there in a scanner, and they just scan you. It's non-invasive. He said, non-invasive? All right, I'll do that one for you. I'll do that one for you. So once he gets a CT scan result, he has several concerning spots. And in the years that were followed, you know, when you, when you put someone in the lung cancer screening program, I don't know if any of you go to their tumor boards, but I have to attend as, a, uh, as the oncologist, um, we just keep following them. Like Q6 month scan, then we do a PET, and then we look at it again, then we talk about like, should we biopsy that, or is it getting bigger? Should we do EBUS, should we do this, that? We're hemming and hawing. So he gets needle biopsy of three of them. One was adenocarcinoma. They do PET-CT and EBUS and dobronchial ultrasound and biopsy. He gets a resection and then he gets adjuvant chemotherapy because maybe he's stage two or 3A, I forget exactly. And so he gets like, you know, four cycles of platinum doublet. That's not fun to get. 
Then a year later, another nodule starts growing. They biopsy that, that's small cell lung cancer. It's actually like er extremely early limited stage small cell. So then we actually give him surgery to cut it out because we didn't know what it was. It was biopsy, it was diagnosed on VATS. Then he gets radiotherapy and chemotherapy, consolidative chemotherapy to cure him of this small cell. And then when it comes to my care, they found a third nodule, they biopsy it and it's squamous cell cancer and it starts to grow. And then they ask me on tumor board if I wanna give him adjuvant chemotherapy a third time. And I say to myself, my God, this guy just wanted to be left alone. Now we're giving him like round after round of chemotherapy. We're finding lesions and we're telling ourselves, hey, small cell lung cancer kills everybody. We're lucky you saved you. But we don't know anything about the natural history of small cell lung cancer when it's detected at five millimeters, you know? We don't have that kind of data. We're, we're extrapolating our experience from clinically significant small cell to like extremely early. You talked about lead time. What kind of lead time do we have on this guy? We don't know. We don't know if he's gonna have a heart attack next year. We don't know what he's gonna die of. And we do know one thing, adjuvant chemotherapy has no randomized data in someone who's gotten it for the third time. Okay, they exclude anyone who's gotten it. They don't, the, the, the trials are always in people who have never gotten chemo. And what you have are nodules growing after ex repeated exposure to platinum, and they're still growing, and you're asking me, do I think he'll benefit from more platinum? For me, that's a little bit far-fetched. So I don't wanna give it to him. Then I go talk to him, and when I talk to him, and I tell him that this whole train started and we actually don't have any data that this screening program makes you live longer and you have been medicalized for the last three or four years and you just wanted to smoke, uh, he says, I'm done with you all. And he stopped coming back, you know? And I think we denied him that, that right to choose his own future because we just put him in the system and, and just, you know, kept scanning him. And, and every time we do it, we just tell him he has to come back, you know? We found something, you gotta come back. We gotta do the buy, we gotta do that, you know? Okay. That completes the screening part. Now I'm going to tell you about some trials. We do have time. Yes? I'm wondering uh, how you have those conversations with patients. I, I guess like it's so hard uh, to show uncertainty as a physician, and, uh, um, especially when it comes to something like cancer. So what do you tell them in terms of screening and treatment? Just I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. So hmm, I'm trying to think of a good example. <clears throat> And maybe I, did I tell this example last time? But I feel like it's a good example. Um, so one, you know, as an oncologist, we are, we are not the ones doing all the screening, okay? I mean, only, only sometimes you come in the picture, it's already like after they found things. But I'll give you one example. Um, you probably see some people with uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and they have rearrangements of MYC, the oncogene, or they have what we call double-hit DLBCL, okay? And you may recommend those patients get dose-adjusted R-EPOC instead of R-CHOP, okay? Now, I was working at some hospitals that I won't mention the names of. And um, to give EPOC at this hospital, EPOC is an infusional regimen that takes five days. And in some hospitals with a lot of money, they put a pump on your hip and they send you home with a pump and it pumps it in you overnight for 96-hour infusion. But in some hospitals, they don't have the availability of the pump and the setup for the outpatient pump. So you have to be hospitalized for five days to get a cycle of EPOC. Whereas CHOP, our CHOP, is given one day in the hospital. You come in, you get it, and you're out in like, you know, six hours. And I guess I have to tell you where it is. So it's at the, it's at the, it's at the VA because uh, we have a lot of patients who come from so far away. Okay, and so often the doctor presents it to them. Listen, you've got the double hit lymphoma. We can't, we can't give you the R-CHOP. We just can't do that. 
you got to come here one week, every three weeks, and spend the week here in the hospital in San Francisco, and then we'll get the shuttle to take you, whatever, seven hours to Northern California to, you know, go home, and we'll bring you back and take you back, and you're going to spend, you know, all these weeks of your life here getting this treatment. We have to do it this way. That's how it's presented. That's not the way I like to present it. And why don't I like to present it that way? Well, if there were randomized data that EPOC is better than CHOP in double-hit lymphoma, and that difference was big, you could still tell the patient, you could ask him, like, is it worth it to you? Like, it's, a, it's an extra, you know, 3% cure rate. You'd be 60% cured versus 63, or, you know, we don't know the numbers because there's no data. But you could tell it to the person, say, is it worth it to you for this little bit of extra cure to come all the way here and give up a week of your life? Um, but we don't have that conversation. People just put them on EPOC. Here's the things I know. One, there's no randomized studies in double-hit lymphoma. Two, they're doing a cross-trial comparison of, of old RCHOP data against very selected EPOC data, which is really apples and oranges. Three, there is a randomized study of EPOC versus RCHOP in everybody with large cell lymphoma, and the curves are superimposable. There's no, there's no benefit of EPOC. Four, EPOC is cumbersome. It requires much more logistics. EPOC has more toxicity. EPOC is, you know. And so the way I, tell, I, I counsel the patient is I say, you know, I guess, look, Here's the honest fact. You got this type of lymphoma. It's a little bit worse. It's worse than the other lymphomas, you know? And different doctors have different recommendations, okay? Some doctors would say you could, give, you could get RCHOP and, you cannot, and we have to be honest with you. It's, it doesn't work for everybody. There's a lot of people, maybe the majority of people, the cancer will come back, you know? It's not a perfect drug because the cancer is so aggressive. Some people want to step it up a notch. They want to give you this regimen, bring you in here, spend a week here, and they believe that it's better. They don't know that to be true, but they believe it, you know? That's what some people believe. And they think it's, the, it's like if you wanted to do the most possible, that would be what they would recommend, you know? But only you know if it's worth it to you to come down here and spend a week in the hospital. And if you got the R-CHOP, they could probably give it to you in that clinic up near you. So what do you want? And I will tell you, every time I have that conversation, you know what they want. Well, I have my dog and I live up there and I don't care if it's a little bit better. You don't know it to be better. I'm not coming all the way down here. Are you crazy? You know? And so... The person is making a very different choice because of the way the information is presented, in my opinion. And I guess that's just one example, but like I, I do present the uncertainty. Um, that's a nice one because they have a very different logistics, you know? But for the most part, if things are equally burdensome, I think, and I think people often do, you know, tend to choose more aggressive regimens and stuff, you know, even with uncertainty. But that's one where I know what I would do. I'm not coming down here. Are you kidding me? No. I know EPOC is no better. I mean, you know, I mean, prove to me it's better, and then maybe I'll get in that van. A six-hour shuttle bus to come down here, spend a week in, in the hospital? Oh, are you kidding me? No way. Not for me. Thank you. No thanks. But we don't give the patients the choice. Yeah. All right. So, all right, I'm going to talk about some trials to boost market share. All right, so one day I opened the New England Journal of Medicine and I saw this. Maintenance Olaparib for germline BRCA mutated pancreas cancer. I said, what the hell is that? I said, okay, let's, get, let's unpack this a little bit. Okay, I know what pancreas cancer is. Okay, that's you know, what Patrick Swayze died of. That's metastatic pancreas cancer. It's a bad diagnosis. Germline BRCA means you were born with the mutation in the BRCA gene, like Angelina Jolie, for instance. It's a subset of pancreas cancer, maybe 10%. They have the germline BRCA. And these people have a problem with sort of DNA repair. That's kind of what predisposes them to cancer. And they make this drug called Olaparib, which actually has some, I won't get into all this, the synergy, but why Olaparib makes sense for, it's a PARP inhibitor, so it actually fixes double-strand breaks and 
It's a pathway that's very important in people who have BRCA mutations. Let me put it another way. This is a drug that can kill cancer that we think works extra well if you have a BRCA mutation. Like it's gonna work better than the average person if you have BRCA mutations that you acquired in life, somatic, or that you were born with, germline. Okay, so the company is testing their, their drug, Olaparib, this is AstraZeneca's drug, in this subgroup of people with pancreas cancer as maintenance. That's what they're doing here. All right, so that's the premise of this study. And then I open my email and I say, oh my God, something happened. This is good. I get this email. It's from Matt Herper from STAT. It says, AstraZeneca's dynamic duo wants to dominate the market for cancer drugs. And here's the quote about this trial. It's unbelievable. It validates the principle that we have been fighting for all these years, that even the most difficult disease, even the disease where you think you're not going to win, if you find the genetic vulnerability, if you find that, then those giants, they crumble. I said, oh my God, that's a quote. Hell of a quote. The giants are crumbling in this study. That's what they're telling me. So I obviously piqued my attention. Oh, not to pick on, well, this is the person who said that, Jose Baselga on the left here. He's a, he's, a very, he's a very interesting person in oncology history. He passed away a few years ago, sadly. All right, I also saw this. This is from my alma mater, University of Chicago. This is the press release, okay? This is the PI. She says, quote in the press release, when we saw the progression-free survival data, my first reaction was a little scream of joy. We finally made real progress in the treatment of a subset of patients with pancreas cancer. I said, scream of joy, giants are crumbling? I gotta read this. What did they do? It's amazing. So whenever I read an article, this is from my talk I told you last time, I, I always say, if you wanna go to sleep and have a long and restful sleep, read that cover to cover, because you're gonna fall asleep right away. And if you wanna actually read the article, you have to have questions in your mind and find the answer. So I always ask myself, what did they do? That's my first question. Just try to tell you what they did. Is the control arm what you would have done in your practice? Okay, this is important. A trial can only change your practice if the control arm is what you do in your practice. What was the primary endpoint? Is it clinical endpoint, like living longer, living better? Or is it a surrogate endpoint, like hemoglobin A1C or LDL cholesterol? And what about other measures of efficacy, activity efficacy? All right, there's a puzzle solving question in here. Let's see. Let's see if you can repeat your success and get the answer to this one. All right, so what they do in polo trial, you know, they took these people with the germline BRCA mutant patients and this like 10% of pancreas cancer patients. I should also say they're a little bit different than the average pancreas cancer patient because the average pancreas cancer patient gets cancer at like 70. Would you believe they get cancer a little bit earlier? Just like I told you about the Alex stuff. Okay, a little bit earlier. They're getting it earlier in their life. So they're a little bit younger. And they took them, and if they had no evidence of progression, meaning the tumor didn't get bigger after four months of therapy, then you were randomized three to two to the new costly drug, Olaparib, or placebo. Okay, so this is Polo. Three to two randomization of people whose tumor didn't get bigger in the first four months. Okay. I said to myself, this is weird. We could talk about skewed randomization, like three to two, why they do it and what it means, but that's, you can ask me the questions, but all right, what the hell is this? First question, is the control arm what you would do? Am I the type of cancer doctor that takes a patient with pancreas cancer? I give him four months of therapy and I say to myself, tumor's not getting bigger, it's time for sugar pill for you. It's time to take that sugar pill indefinitely. I don't do that because I keep giving chemotherapy. You should give at least six months of all the drugs Maybe even more if they're tolerating well. In fact, the studies show never to stop. You're supposed to keep doing it. This is pancreas cancer. We don't just take a drug holiday. We certainly don't take a drug holiday and put somebody on sugar pill. So is the control arm what you would have done? No, because I'm not a negligent and unethical doctor. The control arm is negligent. 
to stop all chemotherapy and put you on sugar pill? I think it's unethical. It's literally what nobody would do to any, like if your father had it, your mother had it, nobody would do that. It's literally crazy talk. So I would say, at, why did the IRB approve this? It's just totally crazy. Now, the authors wanted to make the argument that four months was actually quite a lot of therapy. And they cite the original paper that showed platinum-based therapy. This is the Fulfirinox paper. Um, you know, people don't take much more than four months. And here's what they say. The median number of treatment cycles administered was 10 in the platinum-based therapy drug arm. 10 cycles, it's every two weeks a cycle, is five months. And we made sure you got four months, right? So it's pretty close, right? You're only gonna get five months anyway. But there's a problem with their logic. And the problem is that the POLO trial took people whose tumor didn't get bigger in four months and stopped it. In this study, they took everybody from the start to point of zero. And in the first four months, as you can see, like a third of people had progression. So a third of these people, like the worst third in this study, are not even eligible for POLO. So if you wanna know how many months somebody in POLO could have taken the platinum triplet, you have to throw out the first third of this study. You can't use five months, that's the average of everybody. You're not including these third of people. So if you throw them out and you average it, then you get to about seven months. So you're, you're making them take four months of therapy, but the prior study showed they probably could have taken seven months, right? So that's my first pass attempt at, you know, what you're telling me is nonsense. But actually it's even worse than that because this is a study that enrolled everybody with pancreas cancer, not just germline mutant pancreas cancer. This is everybody. What if we were to look at just the germline mutant pancreas cancer patients, and I won't bore you with how I did that, but I would argue it should be 12 months or more. They're actually getting the most therapy because they're younger than the average age and they're the ones who actually, as I showed you with the ALK, you know, you get the cancer younger, but you actually take the treatment for longer, as is often the case. So here they're getting 12 months or more of therapy. So you took somebody who could have gotten a year of therapy and you stopped it at four months. So it's pretty bad, I think, pretty bad. Okay, what was the primary endpoint? Progression-free survival, progression-free survival. And this is the graph that, you know, when she saw it, she's left, let, let out the scream of joy. I didn't, I, I don't really know, okay? I, I didn't scream of joy. The control arm has a PFS of four months, the intervention 7.4 months, and the curves all eventually show progression, which to me is kind of disappointing. There's not a single person who's gonna be cured of this cancer with this thing. Okay, that's the thing. But I'm an old-fashioned doctor, and I like to look at overall survival. Oh, no, that's not, I thought the next slide. Misanticipated my slide. <laughs> Never change your talk. <laughs> Clinical or surrogate endpoint. Okay, this is, uh, I'll argue it's a surrogate endpoint. It's like A1C, why? Because what is PFS? PFS is you take somebody with cancer, you talk about it all the time with cancers, progression-free survival, this, that, you measure the diameter, the cross-sectional area, the volume, and it is what we call a time-to-event endpoint. It's the time until one of four things happen, whichever comes first. You got this in cardiology with the MACE, Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events. We have it in oncology with um, PFS. One thing that could happen is a patient dies. That's not good. Second thing I have, there's new lesions on the scan. That's not good, like the lungs were clean, now you scan it, there are innumerable pulmonary nodules. Doesn't matter what happened, the part you were measuring. If you got new nodule, new spots everywhere, that's progression. The tumor gets bigger, but how much bigger does it have to get? And the answer is it has to be 120% bigger than the starting volume. 119%, we call that sweet, sweet, stable disease. 121%, we call that devastating progression. But of course, nobody walks around and they're like, I feel good. 117, 118, I'm feeling good. 121, oh, I feel terrible, you know? It's arbitrary. So that's why it's a surrogate. And then if the tumor shrinks, if it shrinks 30% or more, 
we call that a response. Okay, that means you responded to the therapy. And if it grows, we measure growth from the smallest it ever got. All right, so this is what PFS is, the time until one of four things happen. You die, new lesions, progressive disease, or response then progression. Kind of complicated. Now, this, let's get into the interesting part of this paper. So I looked at the response rate. You know, I just told you that response is 30% or more tumor shrinkage, okay? I looked at the response rate on this study. This is of 100 people, well, it's scaled up, it's percentage. So of 100 people who take Olaparib, 20% of people have 30% or more tumor shrinkage. Do I believe it? Sure, it's a cancer drug, it's doing something, it has side effects, costs a lot of money, maybe it shrinks tumors, sure. 10% of people taking placebo have tumor shrinkage. Do I believe that? Do I believe sugar pills shrink pancreas cancer in one of 10 people? I find that a little hard to believe, in fact. I find that a little hard to believe. So the puzzle of this paper is why does this happen? I'm an old-fashioned doctor. I looked at overall survival. That's the bottom. And overall survival is absolutely unchanged. No difference in OS. You don't live any longer by taking this $10,000 a month medicine, even though the control arm is literally forced to stop taking effective therapy. You're literally harming the control arm. You still can't beat it. You still can't have a survival benefit. That's a really terrible drug, if you ask me. I, wouldn't, I, I let out a scream, too, when I saw this, but not for joy. So how do we put these facts together? Progression-free survival benefit, but no overall survival benefit. Sugar pill is shrinking the tumor 30% in 10% of people. All right, I'm going to skip this for time. First thing is, is that typical? Well, actually, long time ago, Ian Tannock from Princess Margaret looked at how many times sugar pills shrink tumor, 30% or more, and the answer was 2.7% of the time. Why is it not zero? Well, there's measurement error. You know, measuring a tumor on a CAT scan is like measuring the width of a cloud. It's not like measuring your height, you know? It's a little blurry on the edges. Okay. So, who knows why? In this control arm, it's shrinking pancreas cancer, which it's not supposed to shrink, four times more than it's supposed to. Does anyone know why? Why is sugar pill so magical in this study? And here's the clue, here's what they're doing. You have the cancer diagnosed, you get four months of chemotherapy, we measure you, then we randomly assign you to a lap rib or sugar pill, and the shrinkage happens on that, at that time, as shown in the picture. So why is it shrinking on sugar pill way more than it's supposed to shrink? Yeah, that's right. Shrinking pancreas cancer is like getting a train to go down the tracks. You put your back into it, you get a push in, and once you let go, it still has inertia. It's still moving down the tracks. And so you scan them, but then even when you withdraw the chemotherapy, one in 10 people has tumor shrinkage. Not because you're giving them sugar pill, because they're still responding to the treatment that you stopped. Now imagine what would happen if instead of stopping, you just kept giving it, which is what you're supposed to do if you're not unethical. If you just keep giving it, you're not gonna get a 10% response rate. That's what happens when you stop. And you're not gonna get a 20% response rate. That's what happens when you give that worthless drug, in my opinion. I think you're gonna get a 30 or 40% response rate. I think you're gonna do better than Olaparib. And so I don't think this is a drug that doesn't improve survival, which is what it is. I think it's a drug that actually takes away life years from people because we stop effective drugs and put you on this. And actually you would've done better if we just kept giving those drugs. I think this shows you that these people were responding to those therapies and then you still stopped it, which I think is really bad. So, polo trial. You halt a therapy that's normally not halted. You randomize people to a new costly toxic pill or placebo. 
you measure an endpoint that is not a measure of what matters. It's a surrogate endpoint. And historically, actually, it's never been accepted in pancreas cancer because guess what? You don't need a surrogate because I already showed you the overall survival. The median's been reached with 18 months. You know, they're not sounding like people living for 20 years, sadly. You don't improve survival. Health-related quality of life is actually no better in this study. So what does the FDA do? What did they do with this drug? They said, on the question of whether Olaparib has a favorable risk-benefit profile, the ODAC voted narrowly in favor, seven to five. And the answer is, heck yeah, because pancreas cancer's risk is ultimate. That's what they say, heck yeah. So when I hear heck yeah, the giants are crumbling, people screaming for joy, and you're talking about a $12,000 a month medicine that doesn't improve survival against sugar pill, which is beneath the standard of care, I think it's not just like, it's not just something you, like, you want to talk about how you counsel patients on this? I would counsel them never to take this drug. I think it should not have been FDA approved. It's a crime that it was FDA approved. No one should ever offer it. Those platinum-based chemotherapy is cheaper. Um, it should never even be offered to somebody. It's negligent. The study is negligent. The investigator should be fined. The company should be fined. The IRB should never have approved it. Uh, and so we wrote that up in the journal Cancer. Should the polo trial change practice? Heck no. Heck no, I say. Heck no. All right. I'm going to skip that. Yes. Yeah. I'm assuming they give the standard base chemo plus Olaparib at the same time. Or I mean, never stop the... They usually give the standard chemo and then add the Olaparib later. Because if you combine Olaparib with it, this toxicity goes through the roof. Yeah. But, they, but a lot of people do stop and put them on Olaparib. Oh, I just realized we don't go till 12. We go to 12.30. Oh, so we do have more time. Okay, okay. I need to rush. So has your article had any impact? That's a good question. It's sort of a deeper question because, um, all right, how to answer that? I guess maybe one question is, has the article had impact on polo prescribing? I think the answer is yes for a few reasons. One, because I was so caustic on it. I really blasted them so hard. I did like multiple podcasts on it. I did like YouTube videos on it. And then I went around the world. I gave so many lectures on this. I was last year in the spring, I was talking to the German regulators, Equig, and then they don't like it. And then word spreads that it's so bad. And I mean, I think it's really poisoned it in the minds of a lot of people. Okay, so that's one. Two, though, I'm again, I'm one person. On the other side, they've got AstraZeneca, which has really unlimited resources to push the product. And they can push the product in a lot of clever ways. The most clever way is that you just, I have like a, a seminar in San Francisco. I invite every oncologist who takes care of GI doctors and I have a free dinner. Okay, that's one way you can actually buy the allegiance of doctors. We all have these. I mean, these free dinners happen all the time, right? But there's an even clever way that the companies know, which is I'll pay you $500. What if I offered you, I came to you all and I said, I'll pay you $500. I want you to give me advice. Like I need advice on how to give this talk to residents, right? So we're gonna have a, uh, we're gonna have a, um, what do they call that? Um, we're gonna have a, like a focus group or they have some title that makes it feel like you're special, right? So I invite you, I send you an email just with your name on it, you know, Dr. So-and-so, you know, you're an internal medicine resident, you're, you're such a thoughtful and well-known person and you're doing such a great job. I need advice on how to give this talk better to residents like you. Would you come and give me some advice, okay? And then I pay you a little bit of money and have a dinner and I just listen to your advice. That I think is a huge psychological reinforcement because I'm not just appealing to you with a little bit of money. It's not the money that's doing it. It's the idea that you're important. And they do that to all these oncologists who, frankly, don't have an original idea at all. I mean, I'll be honest with you, the people they hire at the companies are like literally the best. I mean, I, I, I joke about it, but like, 
the company that hired this guy named John, John Charles Soria, I'd read his papers for years, he's brilliant. Almost never, when you read his paper, he's thinking about things that no one thinks about four steps ahead of anybody. He's the senior vice president. And you mean to think, you mean to tell me that anyone ever gives this guy an idea he doesn't already know? He knows all these ideas. The whole purpose of the thing is to make you feel like you're giving them an idea. You know, and I think it's very difficult for people to have really ideas that they didn't already think about in a company that's got thousands of oncologists that are really, really good. Um, so the entire purpose of this transaction, these, they call them ad boards, these advice boards, is to create this sort of favoritism. And once you capture the favoritism with a little bit of money but a lot of bit of ego boosting, uh, you can get you to prescribe anything. I mean, if we had the same sort of forces for, like Entresto does the same thing. They have dinners, they, all the KOLs, they call them key opinion leaders, they detail them. They know that the opinion of like the, the senior person at UCSF is worth more than the person in like, you know, random community practice in Napa. So they spend much more effort and money on those people. And so I think that that's what, we, that's what you're up against when you're like trying to combat this kind of juggernaut of prescribing. Now the deeper part of your question is, how does one know one has impact at all in one's career? And I think that's a very tough question because, but I do think people don't think about it. You just get caught up in the day to day and you're like, oh, well, one more promotion, one more this, that. But I do think every five years you gotta sit down and be like, did I actually make a lick of difference? And the answer is no. Then I'm like, well, maybe I'm gonna be retiring soon. You know, I mean, if you really think the answer is you're not making much of a difference, you gotta think about that. Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's an NCCN. We have a paper in uh, 20, oh, the first author is Jeff Wagner, your chief resident. Jeff Wagner, it's called Frequency and Level of Extrapolation of NCCN Guidelines, British Medical Journal 2016. I think he was a third year student at the time when he worked with me in Oregon. And um, the paper basically looked at all of the NCCN guidelines. And we basically found that every time the FDA approves something, they say do it. And they also, they go beyond FDA like another 150, they go another 50% beyond FDA. They recommend it for like one more thing that the FDA didn't even approve it for. And when they do that, Jeff went through the evidence, the evidence is always even weaker than Polo. They don't even have a randomized study, they're just kind of winging it. And NCCN has two purposes. One, it's to like advise doctors how to practice. Two, it's a compendia. Okay, in 1992, there was a Medicare Omnibus Reconciliation Act. In that omnibus reconciliation, they said, how does Medicare decide whether or not to pay for platinum or adriamycin? Medicare can't make these decisions by themselves. And the FDA approval for platinum is not for all of the things we use it for. So we need a group of experts to create a compendia to tell Medicare what to reimburse for. And NCCN lobbied in the 2000s and was added to the compendia. So if you're NCCN category 2A or higher, Medicare by law has to pay and they can't negotiate the price. That's the purpose of NCCN. So with that incentive, NCCN just adds all this garbage. It's very difficult to actually look at NCCN and, and know what, how to practice. Um, I do use it as a starting point to know like what people talk about, but I don't think it's a finish line. But yes, they are pushing it. Well, let me do another one. This is a great example of, um, another example of what I think like a bad, bad study is. Adora, they have these great names, Adora, Flora, Stiletto is one, and Cleopatra, these are the kind. And actually somebody did a study that says if the, if the trial has a, uh, like a name that you can remember, you're more likely to cite it than if it doesn't. Like Entresto's Paradigm, 
It's changing the paradigm. Okay, so this is the study that established adjuvant osimertinib. Okay, this is like a $20,000 a month medication as the new standard of care for early stage EGFR mutation lung cancer. Okay, so what do you need to know? Some people who present with lung cancer, it's just in the lung and we cut it out entirely. And that is typically early stage, stage one, two, and three A for the most part. And once you cut it out, depend, you know that there's gonna be a fraction of people in whom the cancer comes back. But the definition of um, adjuvant, at least in the lung cancer space, is that when you scan them after the surgery, there is no visible lung cancer. Like there's no evidence of lung cancer, but we know it's gonna come back in a fraction of people. And so we often give chemotherapy adjuvantly, like a few cycles of chemotherapy to eradicate microscopic disease and hopefully increase the curative fraction. That's why we do adjuvant colon cancer chemotherapy. You know, you may have a loved one who had a, poly, who had a colon cancer removed and there's some lymph nodes involved and they got like, you know, six months of Folfox or three months of Zelox or something like that. So this is adjuvant chemotherapy to increase cure rates after surgery. Now the company comes in with osimertinib and they have three years of osimertinib for somebody with the EGFR mutation lung cancer. That's what they come in with. They wanna run this study. And this figure basically shows you that if you take it, this is the time until you have disease recurrence or death, so it's another time to event endpoint, versus placebo. So you can see there's a big difference. If you take this pill every day for three years, you know, you're much less likely to have the cancer come back than if you don't take the pill. Okay, uh, but it's not like chemo, it's not a fixed course. You take it for three years, and then maybe when you stop, who knows what happens, you know, cancer could come back. Um, does it eradicate the disease? It's hard to know. Maybe it just suppresses the disease from growing because these kinds of drugs have different properties than chemotherapy. Um, but these were the results. Oh, it, it, my slide says $17,000, but somebody can check while I'm talking. I think the price is higher than, than it was for Tigriso, 80 milligrams. But this is per person per month. That's not cheap, per person per month. So when I saw this study, I said, I hope they did the trial this way. I hope they did it this way. I hope they took those patients with early stage lung cancer, and I hope they did a PET CT and MRI brain. Now, why do I want them to do a PET CT and MRI brain? They have localized lung cancer. Why is it important that they get an MR brain in all those patients? Or a PET CT? What if they didn't do those? Yeah, you wouldn't know it's local. There would be some people with occult metastatic disease who actually have it spread everywhere. Now, once the lung cancer is spread everywhere, the standard of care when this trial was run was to give them osimertinib, actually. That was the standard. Once the cancer spread everywhere, they're doing a study in early disease. It's really important that they make sure they find the people whose cancer is spread to the brain because those people don't have early disease. They have brain disease too. And they actually, we already know they benefit from osimertinib, right? But if you were running the trial and you wanted to get a win, you would try not to do those things and have a few people with metastatic disease in your study because you already know they benefit from osimertinib. They're only gonna make your osimertinib look better. You see that logic? And actually they ran the study and they didn't do those things properly. MR brain is piss poor in the study and PET-CT wasn't universal. Then the company says, well, we don't, you know, the places that this is running and we don't have enough money to do it. I was like, yeah, but you know, the pill is $17,000 a month, right? So if they have enough money for the pill, they got enough money for a PET-CT. It's like a, a grand once you get them, you know, two grand. Okay. Then the next thing is the standard of care is adjuvant chemotherapy when the study was run. So I said, I hope they complete adjuvant chemotherapy before they enroll in your trial. But the answer is not everyone did. In fact, many people didn't get the standard of care, which we already know improves cure rates. Now, if you're the company running this study, why is it a good thing that the adjuvant chemotherapy is low? Because 
Oh, does anyone know? Yeah. Why is it good if they don't do the thing that you already know increases the cure rate in this trial? Because the people who are getting osmeric implant will at least be getting some therapy versus you're getting placebo. So yes. You have one arm that's like not getting chemotherapy and nothing, and the other that's not getting chemotherapy, but then getting like indications. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Because they're going to be they're, the only thing that they're going to be getting is their osmeric, which is what they think helps. And another way to think about it is um, that. By not giving chemotherapy, you're going to increase the relapse rate. And then the more you have the bad event, the easier it is to show the benefit of the event, the benefit of the product. The more the event is bad, the more number of people relapse. The statistical power comes not just from the sample size, but actually comes predominantly from the event rate, the number of people having the bad event. And so if you boost that event rate, you actually have much more power. So actually, both of these design choices that they're doing were designed to get a win. Okay, then the third thing is, okay, you should be randomized to adjuvant osimertinib. I'm fine with that. That's the experimental arm. But some of those people will eventually have the cancer recur. And when they recur, well, you've already blown through your osimertinib. Now you've got to give them chemotherapy. Actually, you can't give them, you can't give them osimertinib again because like, the cancer grew on osimertinib. So you have to give them chemo, old-fashioned chemo. In the control arm, we watch you. That's fair. But when your cancer comes back, you should get the standard of care for somebody with metastatic EGFR lung cancer, which is osimertinib. And then if you progress again, you should get chemo. And so when they measure DFS, disease-free survival, they're only measuring to that middle bar, that time until the cancer comes back. But what I'm more interested in is the final question of overall survival. Like in other words, by giving everybody the drug after surgery, is that better than giving it to some people when they relapse, knowing that if you get it after surgery and you relapse, you really don't have great options. You just gotta get old chemotherapy. Okay, so is it clear why, like, Overall survival should be the endpoint because we already use this drug, and if you use it early, you have one less drug to give them later, and it's actually like a pretty nice drug to take later because it's low toxicity. In fact, if you relapse on the drug, then you got to take the worst chemotherapy. Okay. So in oncology, we have these situations called with crossover. Crossover means it means different things in different contexts. In psychiatry, it means like you could do a study of depressed people with depression and you could randomize them to Prozac or sugar pill for 12 weeks, and they keep a diary of how depressed you are. Then you stop for two weeks, and then you get randomized to the opposite of what you got. Okay, so you could do bi-directional crossover. You can cross them in both directions, and you can ask differences between Prozac versus placebo, both between the groups and intra and individual. You can prove that I'm less depressed when I take it than when I don't. But in oncology, we can't do bi-directional stuff. We can do unidirectional crossover, Meaning we take somebody who initially got osimertinib, sorry, who initially got placebo, and when they progress, they get the active drug osimertinib. Okay? That's what most of our, many of our studies have this crossover feature. And I think we're perpetually confused because sometimes it's desirable, sometimes it's undesirable, sometimes you have it, and sometimes you don't have it. So you get like, if you want it and you get it, it's good, and if you don't want it, you don't get it, that's good. But if you want it, you don't get it, that's bad, and if you don't want it, you get it, it's bad. We get all these four quadrants. So this study does not have crossover, okay? In other words, if you got the placebo sugar pill, this adjuvant Adora trial, and you had your cancer come back, the manufacturer did not make sure you got osimertinib. But did we want it or not want it? We wanted it. Why? Because what? Yes. Yes. Yes, because that's the standard of care outside of the study. So crossover was, cross, sorry, I, 
uh, my slide is screwed up. Crossover is desirable when the drug has already proven a benefit in a more advanced disease setting and you're testing the routine early administration versus giving it to people when you should give them anyway because that's the standard of care. So that's when it's desirable. So if you wanted it and you don't have it, your study is bad. And it turns out this study has very low rates of crossover, like 20%. And they have an OS benefit, but it's absolutely uninterpretable. So in my opinion, this Adora trial is actually deeply unethical. Okay, so when we were talking about this, I kept going on and on about that cost. I was like, you're giving all these people all this drug. It's so much money. And a KOL says this. Well, you know, you're forgetting that everybody whose cancer comes back on the control arm they pay that same amount of money or more with inflation. So it's a faulty argument. You're only paying for people who would have been cured, which is really low, you know, it's really low. And I was like, well, I don't think that sounds right to me because, you know, there's a dwindling line of, you know, the population gets smaller over time. Anyway, the long story short is I ran the, I said, I, I ran the rough numbers during using the median duration of treatment. It is horrendously more costly to treat per Adora than Flora, even assuming 100% osseate progression. It is $450,000 per person extra and like a cumulative cost of like $60 million for like 100 people, hypothetically. So like this idea that you're saving the money by giving it to everyone early is just like totally crazy talk. It's not even possible. All right. Okay, I'm going to stop with Adora. This cancer stuff is... it's technical, but I uh, hope it's of some. It's, it's amazing how complicated it is and how, like if you don't run through it like that, there's no way of understanding. <laughs> yeah, and maybe, maybe I need to have an ad board to see how I could do better with that one, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll pay you $500. But who here is doing oncology? It's gotta be one person. Show me one hand. Wow, yes, all right. Good. Oh, Radonk. Who's Radonk? Ah, Radonk. Well done. All right. What's that? Radonk, yeah. All right, now I'll do one fun one and then we'll stop. Um, okay, the fall booster campaign coming out just now. I got a bone to pick with it, especially because I know I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to roll up my sleeves soon myself, or I have to find some embarrassing declination form. At UC, they have like a really embarrassing form you have to sign if you don't want it. It says, you know, I promise that I know that by doing this, I'm a horrible person, and that I'm murdering somebody in a distant state, and I take the blood is on my hands, and I'll think about it every day when I take a shower and scrub my hands. It's literally, the form is really, it's really kind of messed up form. I should take a picture of it. Okay, well. We're going forward with, I don't know, I had three doses. Well, let's do a show of hands here, and you don't have to participate. Who's had three doses? That's me. Who's had four doses? Who's had five doses? Who's had six doses? So my friend has had seven doses. <laughs> that's a lot of doses. Who's had one COVID? Okay, that's me. Who's had two COVIDs? Three COVIDs? Four COVIDs? Three COVIDs. Three COVIDs is about the most I've heard, yeah. Okay. So if you've had, let's just say you're a 20-year-old man, you've had three shots and three COVIDs, should you get a fall booster? Okay, that's a, question, that's a question I see being discussed these days. And I see there's an answer from the CDC. Ashish Jha, he's the White House COVID czar, former czar, now the dean of public health at Brown University. 
He's on Good Morning America. I couldn't get the clip to like cut in, but they ask him point blank. They say, why should I get the shot, Dr. Zah, Dr. Jaw? He says, not Dr. Zar, <laughs> Dr. Jaw. He said, it makes the holidays much safer. Then the anchor says, quote, what about, not quote, but he says, something, what about the person who's reluctant, who says, quote, I've had COVID three times and I've had all the shots. Three COVIDs and the shots. Jaw says, per, such a person should still get the fall booster. He says, it's gonna be milder. You're less likely to spread to others. You're less likely to spread it to grandma and the long COVID gets reduced a lot. That's what he says. But of course, the problem with the statement is he doesn't have evidence for any of this. There actually is no randomized data showing any of these claims. There's no randomized data that shows long COVID gets reduced from any of the shots. The data we do have is from WashU St. Louis. I see your coat, but it's, 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 a, it's a VA data set. It's a VA data set. And what it is is among people who have a documented SARS-CoV-2 infection in the VA data set. Now of all the people who put their hand up, they have COVID three times. How many of your COVIDs are documented in any EHR? For me, it's zero because I took it at home, I looked at it, and I threw it away. It's not in the EHR. Now, to be documented in a VA EHR, do you think you're, you're somebody with a mild case of sore throat and sniffles, or you're really sick? Because to get somebody the VA to document the VA EHR, it's really sick. So these like long COVID studies that come from this group at the VA in WashU, I think are very problematic because it's not anybody who had COVID, it's anybody who had COVID and has a positive documented COVID test in the VA system which is not most people because we, I'm, not bringing, I'm not going to the doctor, you know? Like most people, are, even veterans aren't going to the, the VA hospital to get that documented. It's only like the most sick veteran who's gonna get that documented. So I think that's another problem with it. And what about the spread claim? You know, okay, let's run through some. The second thing is, it's very different. The US policy that we're starting this fall is that anybody over the age of six months should get the booster, no matter how many times they've had COVID before. If you're over six months of age, you should get it. But the United Kingdom says only 65 and up or select people under 65. Australia says only 65 and up or very select people under 65. Sweden, I think, is 55. Denmark is 65. Spain is, I think, 55. And Germany, I think, is 55. Not a single peer nation says, if you're 20 and had three shots and three COVIDs, you should get it. None of the peer nations recommend it, but we recommend it. I think that's a bit bold. What about benefit to others? This is the Omicron data that was in the England Journal. And here they're looking at vaccine effectiveness from observational data um, of booster versus no booster. And this is the percent of people who have any symptom, any infection, like symptomatic asymptomatic, any, P any PCR detected infection. And the, the percent effectiveness peaked at like about you know, 30%. But as time goes on from the booster, it wears off. That like with enough time after the booster by 16 weeks, you know, there really is null effects. Um, I think this is optimistic because people who get boosters and people who don't get boosters, people who get the shots and don't get the shots are different in other ways than getting the shot. Who do you think is more precautious? My friend who got seven doses or me who got three and stopped doing it? <laughs> My friend. Who, and, and proof of that is there's a paper by Donald Redelmeyer from Toronto where he looked at car accidents and people who get more shots have, people got more shots, had fewer car accidents than people get less. Does the shot prevent car accidents? No, it's just that it's a different type of person getting it. Well, that's baked in here too, because this doesn't adjust for how many times you like hang out with your friends and go to wine bars and like go to, you know, whatever. You know, so like this is partly maybe vaccine effect, but partly also like the different population effect. But even with that, by 16 weeks is a total wash. 
Some studies show negative efficacy, meaning you're slightly more likely to get it with time. I don't believe that myself because, again, these are different groups of people. Um, and and may, you know, but but uh, but I think it's I'm fair to say that there's probably almost no benefit in any infection. But I would also point out one thing: this is not transmission. We don't have any studies, to my knowledge, that actually measure transmission. When people say that you're no longer infective, you know, they say like. Uh, you have to wait for the test to be negative before you can go back to work because you're, quote, no longer infective. They mean that you're no longer able to have your virus be cultured. But they've not actually studied whether or not you're actually infecting another person. It is a built-in, it is a surrogate for infection. We have very little data on the actual rate of spread. All right, that's one point two. Of 350 million Americans, the uptake of the last one was about 14, 15%. I suspect we'll get 7 to 10% of people taking it. And so this idea that the holidays will be safer, grandma will be safer, I think is extremely unproven. But, it, but the idea that like, the community will be safer, for me, it's the analogy is closer to like, it's like dumping a cup of water in your backyard when the forest fire is coming. Because you're really going to get, like, of the 8 billion people on the planet, you're only going to get the rich inhabitants of a few nations to do it in very low numbers. And so as COVID sweeps around the globe over and over again for the next 100,000 years, you know, it's really gonna be like a forest fire coming and you're just putting like a cup of water. We actually have no data that making healthcare workers get it actually makes your patients safer. I mean, I hear people say that and I'm like, well, you're an oncologist, you wanna keep your patients safe? I was like, I wanna keep my patients safe. Do that, that means when I'm sick, I'm not gonna to go to work. And maybe if I'm not sick too, no, I'm just kidding. If I'm, if I'm sick, I'm not gonna to go to work. But, I'm, but there's no data that actually, we've never been studied. It, these are all very, these are assumptions people have made, which I think are extremely dubious assumptions. Now. People say that it lowers your risk of hospitalization. This is the Omicron data that says you're much less likely to be hospitalized by getting the booster and that's sustained over time. But the problem with this is, one problem is, you can't separate somebody hospitalized from Omicron versus with Omicron. And that's a big problem because in the beginning of the pandemic, I saw all my patients, I mean, all my, not all, many of my patients got sick with COVID, but they had full-blown ARDS lungs were terrible. Now I so often see I'm admitting somebody for EPOC against, you know, the EPOC cycle three, and they swab them on entry and they're COVID positive. So their hospitalization can often be called a COVID hospitalization, but they weren't hospitalized for COVID. They actually didn't feel anything. They were hospitalized because somebody didn't have an honest conversation with them about EPOC and they chose EPOC, you know? That's one. The second problem with this data is what we wrote about. So we have a paper in New England Journal where we call potential healthy vaccine bias in the BioNTech vaccine against COVID. And we found this Israeli study that showed that the booster had a like 90% reduction in, in death from COVID, the no booster. But then later they accidentally, they didn't even want to, they accidentally told you how many people died from reasons besides COVID, car accidents, heart attacks, strokes. And we calculated, we said, quote, the mortality not related to COVID-19 among people who were boosted versus no boosted was 94.8% lower. Actually, it was, it, was, it was even bigger. How does the booster lower your risk of dying for other reasons by 95%? What's the answer? It doesn't. It's just different people getting it. So that actually affects this curve too, I think. And actually that affects this, this curve too. And if anything, actually the, the truth is probably even more sobering. All right, anyway. So put all this together. Oh, then the last thing. I would say that the myocarditis, I mean, if you're a 20 year old man, you do have one thing to worry about that the average person doesn't worry about. If you're a man between like 12 and 40, which I still, still fall in briefly, uh, still, I'm still in the risk higher risk age group. Um, you know, um, 
which is myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. And then people say that, well, boosters don't have it, but actually Katie Scharf shows that it's about one in 10,000 from boosting. Um, that's the paper from the American Journal of Medicine. It's poorly reported for bivalent, sorry, American Journal of Cardiology. I think it's difficult to justify a population campaign without randomized data in young people when other peer nations don't do it, when it doesn't halt transmission, when it's unlikely to further lower severe disease or death beyond already base rates, when there is a potential one in 10K risk of severe adverse event. And if you have myopericarditis, you, people say it's self-limited, it gets better, but we do have some gadolinium studies from like a year later showing a little bit of scar. Now, what does that scar mean? Nobody knows, but you know, having a little scar in your heart could be nidus for like sudden cardiac events in the future. So I just think it's like, you know, it's a total, it's a total gamble. Um, and I think it's not prudent to do it. So Paul Offit agrees. Paul Offit made the rotavirus vaccine. He says, he's a pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia who sits on the FDA's own vaccine advisor group. He strongly opposed the broad recommendation for previous boosters and says it makes even less sense now. Quote, the goal of the vaccine is to prevent severe disease. You can't ask people to get a vaccine if you're trying to prevent severe illness and there's no evidence you're at risk of serious illness. He also says Offit, who is 72, had COVID once and is in good health. He did not receive the bivalent booster. He won't get the new one. I think I have hybrid immunity and hybrid immunity is best. All right, so, and then he talked about myocarditis. All right, so what do I think is going on? I think that, I think there is a conflict of interest in this space. When Trump was president, people very much worried that he was going to authorize a vaccine in October before the election in order to win the election, even if there was no good data. That was a big worry people had. And they, to be honest, I had that worry too. I was worried that he would do such a thing. And then people said that the only thing that protects him is that the FDA makes decisions independent of politics. The White House does not authorize those decisions. But in the fall of 2021, the Biden administration wanted to have boosters in 12-year-old boys, and there were two vaccine officials, Mary Gruber and Phil Krause, that had been FDA for 30 years. They didn't want to do that. They didn't see data to do that. They resigned. And since that resignation, the White House has made all the decisions. But that's troublesome because the White House's incentive is to make decisions not necessarily what's best for medicine, but what's best for political prospects. So if I was in the White House and I was advising as a political advisor, I'd say, you should approve the booster for six months or more. Why? Because some of your constituents, particularly your base, want to have that option. And if you don't give them that option, they're gonna be mad at you. So just give them that option, what do you care? Um, and I think that's probably the root of the bias. And then I do think that the COVID czar, his path is quite interesting because how did he become the White House COVID czar? He is the Dean of Brown but he's not an infectious disease doctor. And there's reporting in New York Times that says they picked him because he was really good on CNN. And he was really good on CNN because he praised everything they were doing. Now, how did he get on CNN? Well, they picked him because he was really good on Twitter. So actually that's how they pick people for the news because they see you on Twitter and then they put you on the news and then they see you on the news and they pick you for the White House, which to me is a little bit crazy because it actually creates a perverse incentive among expert class, which is that you're not really trying to call balls and strikes. You are really auditioning for somebody who may give you career advancement. So actually, that's what I think the real conflict of interest is in this space. Okay, I'll skip that. All right, I'm happy to take questions. But my thing is, I, I think that healthcare system should not be mandating this. This is absolutely crazy. And I think that it should be at least declination form for anybody if they want. So one, if you're interested in like reading more clinical trials like Polo, I have like a video series on my YouTube channel. Apparently all with the same ridiculous thumbnail. Uh, we have a... I host like three of these little kind of substacks. One is called Drug Development Letter, where we only talk about drug development. So I think only one of you will be interested. In <laughs> one person will be interested. 
We got another one that's about medicine broadly. It's called Sensible Medicine. Um, and I think that's a good one. We got a cardiologist who writes a Monday column. I got my colleague Adam Sifu who writes a very touchy-feely column about medicine. I write some random columns. Um, so Sensible Medicine on Substack. And then I have my own, it's called My Name, Observations and Thoughts. I host this podcast plenary session, which is mostly oncology, health policy kind of stuff. Uh, and I have this cancer book that, again, only, well, maybe the radon people will be interested. So maybe we've got three people interested in this book. Okay, all right, I'm gonna stop here. If you want to be in contact with me. Okay, one thing I should always say is that, like, if there's anyone here who wants to do research for fellowship in any field, because we've got some cardio, we have a really good cardiology project we just finished, but if you're doing GI or whatever, or I don't know, hemonc or pum critical care, and you want to do a research project, we do research projects in policy. That means that they're all computer-based. Uh, it's mostly meta-research, like what I showed you. So it's all like you could do from home. And we have Zoom meetings like three times a week so we could talk about it. So you're, you're all, anyone's welcome to email me about a project. And then if you ever read a paper that you're like, hmm, I, you know, I have some questions about this paper, you can email me too. Okay, uh, that's, that's it. So I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks so much for having me. Olaparib, yeah, polo. Yeah. Have there been other people that have also found a problem with it and that have also joined your cause to get hmm. it not approved? <clears throat> That's a good question. I guess I would say, I gave you the Olaparib as an example, but probably if you look through like the papers we've done and the videos and podcasts, it's like one of like 100 or 200 examples in the last decade of things that have the similar problems. Control arm is bad or like a Adora, they didn't do crossover, or they didn't measure the right endpoint, or they have something called censoring and all these problems. And I would say when I started, there was like maybe two other people who were doing this kind of work. Now I'd say there's like 20 or 40 other people doing this kind of work. So do people agree with me on polo? Yes. Do they also like tell people polo is a crappy trial? Yes. They often point them to the video I have about polo, but I think more impactful there are people who have taken some of these ideas, especially from that book I wrote, and like try to apply it in different tumor types, different studies, and there are a lot of people doing that kind of stuff. So I think there's a group of people who are like, it's built up in that follow-up, yeah. And then my other question was about the taste Yes. You don't recommend it for healthy people? Young people. How does that go, how does that bode at UCSF? <laughs> yeah, I don't know because <laughs> I guess, I guess I'd say, nobody tells me anything. No, I guess I'd say, um, well, one is, maybe I'll delete this from the video, off the record, there are a lot of people who are on my side on this debate, and they want to host a debate between me and the, hell, and the, the person at University of California system who actually set this policy. So we'll see if that person is willing to come on and debate this, because it's not gonna be pretty, because I have a lot of slides I didn't show. Okay, so I, I mean, so that's one. Two, in the peak pandemic, there was somebody who arranged a meeting between me and the um, health officer of a, uh, let's say, a top 15 university in this country. And the meeting was to discuss the policies they had on like testing the college students and isolation and boosting mandates and all this stuff. And I went to this thing, meeting and I was mortified when in the course of the discussion it was clear that the person who set the policy like doesn't really know the data that well at all. 
and everyone could everyone knows that you know so I guess that that's one of my concerns is that these policies have a lot of inertia and the policy is being is really set at the White House I mean this the idea to boost everyone over their six months of age is not being set by FDA it's not being set by local schools it's being set by White House that's very that is the exact thing we worried about with Trump which actually he never went that far but it has happened now and I do think it's really concerning because the more you don't want White House to control any medical decisions ever I mean I think it's always a bad idea and so now what do people think? I'm sure there's some people who would disagree, but if they really want to, they should. They can host a debate. I'd so here's what I think a good debate is. Intelligence squared format. You, any audience you want. You poll the audience at the baseline. How many of you think you know, we should give a 20-year-old booster? And then you do opening statements, questions from audience, closing statements. And then you poll them again and say how many people think. And the winner is whoever changes most votes. I'll always do that kind of debate. I think that's a very fair plan. So... I think we're supposed, to, we're supposed to do that at UC on this question, because I think a lot of people don't like this one more. Yeah. Especially when you've had COVID and that recovered already. Yeah, okay. Any other questions? Yes. So, you know, I'm with you in that, like, we always want to wait for evidence and use the best evidence to guide decision making, but uh, a lot of times we're working evidence-free zones or we have to wait too long for good evidence to appear. And so how do you make decisions when Good question. What do you do when you like don't have evidence or can't generate evidence? So I guess one thing is I think that maybe we'll talk a little bit about. Um, okay. Each year we debut the flu vaccine. We don't have evidence. We don't have randomized evidence. Okay. And so then I was talking about this with some colleague, and he was like, "Well, you can never do a randomized trial of the flu vaccine because the time you get the result, the whole season is over." And I was like, "Well, actually, there's a lot of assumptions that go into that statement that are probably not true. One is, um, okay. One is there people people." You could do a randomized study where you randomize everybody getting it. Like this is done in the Netherlands. It's called registry-based randomized trials. You're randomizing a million people a week. If you randomize a million people a week to flu shot uptake in September, you could get a signal by the middle of September. I mean, so one thing is you could, the trial could be a lot faster than people think because it's related to the event rate. And you could just crank up your sample size and randomize everybody. And in the Netherlands, they did it for like $50 per person in a trial called TASTE. That's one. Two, I was like, okay, even if, if I were to concede to you, that the randomized trial will take a long time, there's still randomized studies you could do. So here's one example. Every year we have a flu shot, they have to pick two or three strains that they think will circulate in the Northern Hemisphere, which is different than COVID because here they pick strains that are already circulating. So the flu shot is predicting the future, but this is actually looking at past circulating strains. But we predict the future, we get developed the flu shot and we debut it. And then we do something called test negative case control studies to ascertain effectiveness. CDC has a list of them. The effectiveness ranges from Good years are like 40% effectiveness against lowering influenza, um, but bad years are 10%. Uh, and this is some, a, a design called test negative case control, which is not randomized, has some problems. I think it's upwardly inflated. I think the real numbers are lower. Now, what I told this person was like, imagine a different randomized study. Here's the randomized study. There's two different algorithms that tell you what to put in the shot. Algorithm A uses a certain computational method. Maybe it more heavily weights um, uh, Sydney, Australia and, and Hong Kong. Algorithm B uses a different computational method, maybe more heavily weights, I don't know, Thailand, uh, Singapore, I don't know, or, uh, you know, okay. And then you do a randomized study season over season between vaccine A and B, influenza vaccine A and B. And you also look at adverse events of A and B. And then you can say after five seasons, actually algorithm B is a better performer. But we don't do those studies either. And, and one can imagine, the moment you start to imagine two different algorithms to make the thing, you can imagine six different algorithms, pick the winner. Six different algorithms and control arm of nothing. The other thing we can do is challenge randomized studies. What's a challenge study? 
Challenge studies can be done in four days. Here's what you do. You actually enroll healthy participants. You can even pay them money. And you can enroll them and vaccinate them with the COVID-19 booster, six different versions of it with different slights, you know, uh, things. And then actually, um, in, and take 10 people with COVID-19 and have them come sit in the house with you. So you're literally challenged with under direct exposure. And many people argue that these studies are unethical because they um, create risk for participants. But I argue, and I think there are lots of people who argue, that they're actually more ethical because they can generate evidence faster. So if we did challenge studies in the summer of 2020 and we moved that COVID-19 vaccine date, which was November, what, 8th was the, was the press release and it, was a, it came out in December. You all got your shot like end of December, January, that's when I got mine. But if you moved that to September, you know, you're talking about like 50,000 people would still be alive. You know, like, you know, so if you did a challenge trial and maybe a few 20 year olds got COVID in the study, you could have saved 50,000 lives. I think it's often unethical not to do the challenge trial. So that's another type of study you can do. Um, okay, this is just this one topic, but let's talk about your broader question. Every day in oncology, I have questions I don't have randomized data to. What do I do? Uh, I do think that the goal of the dialogue is not that the patient does what I would do. In fact, I usually keep a secret what I want to do for myself. When they ask me, like gun to my head, what would you do if it's your father or mother? I tell them the truth, which is that here's what my father would do and here's what my mother would do, and they're often very different because they have different personalities. My dad was the kind of person who would never do anything unless he really knew, and even then he didn't want to do it. And my mother's the kind of person who would do everything, you know? So I tell them that. My goal is just to give people the information and let them make the choices that they want. When I wear my policy hat, I think $20,000 a month is disgusting for that drug, and I don't think governments should pay for it. But when I wear my doctor hat and the insurance company is going to pay for it, I don't introduce cost, you know? Like, I think when you see an individual patient, that's not the place to be thinking about cost. Like, if the system will pay, the system will pay. It's whatever's best for them. But at the same time, when you come out of the room, yeah, I think we should advocate for like lower prices and things like that. So that's kind of how I handle it. Um, but I think in the majority of decisions we face daily have no data. Um, I guess I have other priors. My other priors are, which come from a lot of experience, which is that like most of what we do in medicine has smaller effect sizes than you think. Most of the time you extrapolate data from young healthy people to older, frailer people, the effect size gets smaller, toxicities get worse, trade-offs get rougher. Um, sometimes it's easy to medicalize somebody and think you did better. It's easy to like, if, if you give them a treatment and then they die, you'll say, well, at least I tried, or you know, they're gonna die anyway. And if you give them the treatment and they lived, it's easy to say, well, it's because I did it. Uh, it's harder to admit that you know, our effects are probably much less than we think. Um, those are just some of my rules of thumb. Well, anyone's also welcome, if you're free Mondays, you want to come to clinic, you're welcome to come. Monday, like 9 to 1 at the general. Very fun place. Any other questions? Yeah? Good question. It was actually about the flu. I was, Go ahead. Which you already talked about. But I was just curious, like, if you had the same feeling. I don't know the data on the flu and, for instance, like, how long into the season the flu vaccine protects you. And I was just curious whether you also were going to get the flu shot this year or would recommend others to do the same. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat, which is that I'm very skeptical. I've often signed declination forms, et cetera. And here's why, well, one thing I tell you to look at, there are three Cochrane reviews, influenza vaccination for children, like uh, for children, for healthy adults, and for older people. They all have co-author Tom Jefferson. Uh, so those are worth rereading. Uh, two, I think, um, you know, like if, if I have an 85-year-old person with multiple myeloma in my clinic and they're like, should I get the booster or should I get the flu shot? Yeah, sure, why not? You know, like, okay. But a 20-year healthy person and they have, re they have some apprehensions about it, I'm like, whatever, I'm not going to fly. It's on a hill I'm going to die on personally. I think we, we, as a profession, we're not interested in generating better data. 
those reviews are actually much more sobering. Um, there's a nice article by uh, in the BMJ. It's a it's a pro con debate from about eight years ago called "Should Healthcare Workers Be Mandated to Get Flu Shot?" And there's two sides. You can read it. That's a good one. And then this guy Peter Doshi, D O S H I, has multiple papers in BMJ and Jam Internal Medicine that are good on that. But I do think that we have a missed op. And we were writing a paper called yearly flu vaccination, a missed opportunity for randomized studies. And in it, we're gonna come up with like 12 different studies you could do. One is that algorithm that I talk about. Now with machine learning, you could have a, you could have like, you know, chat GPT comes up with a shot. And this, you know, you could really, you could employ machine learning. So we're gonna think of like 20, 10 different ways we could have better studies. But there's a, the biggest inertia in healthcare is that people don't want to study things because we haven't studied them in the past. And it's easy to just keep passing it forward. But I guess I'm generally skeptical of lots of things we do in healthcare. But at the same time, I do think we do great things. If I had a heart attack right now, I'm going to tell you to open up that artery. And I'll take aspirin plavix. You know, of course. Yes? Oh, you can go. Oh, no, I did. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I um, <clears throat> so I know, um, you know, we talked about how a lot of the cancer screening doesn't change overall yeah. mortality. Um, but I was just curious if um, there could be a case for, um, you know, at least it may be reducing morbidity enough that it would be good worth question doing. yes or if we could just you know change the parameters so that would be the case maybe if it's too broad now in terms of who we include if we were to tighten that would we then see that more morbidity benefit that would make it worth it two very smart questions so i guess one one argument he's saying is like okay let's say lung cancer screening does not actually improve survival but what if it means fewer people get full pneumonectomy fewer people get adjuvant chemo Few, there's more wedge resections instead, um, uh, or there's more SBRT, like uh, stereotactic radiation, so that actually morbidity is better. And I will concede to you that if somebody shows that to me, I will be 100% a proponent of any of the screening tests. But I'll tell you, with these studies, not only have they not shown that, they haven't even collected the data. So we looked at NLST, and in the NLST data set, they collect what they call the first procedure. So if you get a nodule found, and you get a needle biopsy, we have a record that you had a needle biopsy. But if the needle biopsy is positive, and then you get EBUS, and then they do EBUS, and they do VATS, and they do whatever, none of that's in the data set. Nobody has that data. Nobody has all the downstream data, how many pneumonectomies, we don't have how many, we don't have a chemotherapy. So actually, it's like a huge data failure. So that's one. But your, your, your mind is in the right place. Like morbidity is a good enough reason to do something in the absence of mortality. Two, I would say that in medicine, though, things that improve morbidity often also improve mortality. I think they're very tightly correlated. There are very few things I can think of that do one, not the other. The third point, a screening test, maybe it works in a high-risk group and not in a low-risk group. And maybe it's not good for everybody. And I 100% think that, should be, that, that it should be looked into. Like, is it possible that mammograms work better in African-American women because they have worse outcomes and worse? Possible, yes. Is it possible PSA works better in African-American men? Possible. Uh, we should have randomized studies in high-risk populations or like genomically risk populations and, and to prove benefits in those groups. There's little appetite for that. We've always in America chased the one size fits all, like get everybody kind of solution. The same with the booster policy. We're trying to get it for everybody. And actually another problem with trying to get, if you go and say everyone over six months should get it, one problem is you might actually um, miss out on giving it to all the people you know, 80 and up in nursing homes who might really be benefiting. You know, Maybe actually some of these other countries by being more focused, you actually get a higher adherence rate in the target group, which is what looked like in Sweden. Actually they have a good adherence in older people. Um, so, but I think your mind is in the right place. It's just that we just don't have data. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, it's more like a comment, and I, I mean, as doctors, we should be doing what the patients want. I think what I've 
feel is challenging is when I, let's say I'm trying to get a patient to go into palliative, like work with palliative care, and I'm, I'm not even proposing hospice, um, and you talk about kind of these overall like general outcomes and what, what maybe they should be thinking about is their you know, overall quality of life. It, 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 I feel like more of the time it falls flat, and, um, and maybe that's the way I'm conveying it, but uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it seems like a lot of patients do still focus on like the disease and reversing course, and like if you have any strategies for, I guess, how you've approached that, um, or, yeah, or thoughts a... on that, I, it's just really challenging, especially in the ICU, which is where I am. In ICU? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you a lot, and I think that there's definitely a role to like talk to someone and see what they prefer and do that. But I do think there's also a role in medicine to say sometimes to somebody, it's like, you know what? I recommend that you go on hospice. I recommend you go on palliative care right now. You know, I do not recommend we do this. I do not think it's a good idea. And so sometimes, like I don't know, one of the reasons I went to oncology rather than ICU, even though I loved ICU, is I felt ICU was super hard because you just met the person like five days ago or like a week ago and then they don't know you, you know, and then you got to come in and have that and say something like that and they're like, you know, kind of distrustful sometimes. But in oncology, often I've known somebody for a year and the daughter's been there and, and so if I say it, you know, they, they feel like, okay, you know, he's, you know, they, they, so I do think it's important that people say that, but I think you're right. I mean, especially in American medicine, we all know that like we do way more at end of life than anybody else. There's a paper in science by Ziad Obermeyer, and um, I guess I'll mention it just to say why it's wrong. Uh, okay, so like there's, we, we often cite a statistic called, that says like, you know, like, 90, or like 50 percent of healthcare spending is in the last seven months or something, or like 90 percent is in the last years. You know, something like, it's always like that kind of statistic. A lot of healthcare spending is like close to the end of life. But Ziad Obermeyer's point was that, well, you don't know when someone's going to die. Maybe like you're doing all that stuff, and some people die by chance, but the other people are like saved as a result of what you do. So he actually used a machine learning algorithm and he applied it to people to predict the likelihood of being alive or dead in a year. And then he showed that no matter how badly you scored on this, this value, like the computer says, like you are really gonna die. You know, that um, basically uh, there was, um, um, uh, uh, um, sorry, even if you scored very high, there were people who were both alive and both dead, even at very high values. Like it's very difficult to, to point to somebody and say, you're 100% gonna die. Like even in the highest number you could get, like you're off the charts risk of death, you still only have like a 20% risk of dying or something like that. So Obermeyer's point was something called ex ante, like before you know what happened to them, you cannot tell me who's going to die. Ergo, that spending at the end of life is not wasteful because we could not tell you in advance who's gonna be dead. So we're spending on everybody, we just don't know who's gonna die. It's not like doctors know you're gonna die. If they did know you're gonna die, maybe they're not gonna spend on you. So that's the Obermeyer paper. But I think the flaw of his paper is he doesn't realize that whether you lived or died, we often did things to you that didn't do anything. They're just wasteful things. Some people happen to survive in spite of what we did, and some people died you know, despite what we did, but it's not the thing that we did that improved survival. Okay, that's a complicated argument, but it's basically saying that I do think it is likely in American medicine, we do so many things to people that don't improve outcomes. Some of them don't die, some of them live, but it didn't mean that it helped them, you know? For everything from, um, oh, there's the New England Journal paper last week, ECMO in people with uh, MI and cardiogenic shock, negative study. Uh, aortic balloon pump, negative study. Um, uh, impella has not been studied properly, but all this cardiology, I mean, many of these things probably don't work. 
Um, Swan Gans catheter didn't work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay, but to your point, to your point, I mean, your point is really like, how do you have these conversations? I think it's the hardest thing. Uh, and it's good to have somebody in the room who like knows them like the primary care doctor or something. Sometimes you have to like make a direct recommendation. Um, but I agree with everything you said. I think it's just a cultural thing. And culture, American culture. Yeah. Yeah. Super quick question. You talked about like American culture, American practice. Um, in other countries where they might use more comparative effectiveness analysis to decide what to provide and what not to provide, yeah. have you noticed, or maybe you can speak from the oncology perspective, and like talking to Germany, like are the outcomes better because they've just decided as a country they're not going to follow the public trial, they're not going to reimburse for that medication? Yeah, it's a good question. What about outcomes in other countries? Well, actually, at 8 p.m. today, I will be on the flight to Copenhagen because I'm going to do a few more talks there. And uh, people in Western Europe are all very interested, from the Netherlands to Germany to the UK, because no system there will pay for everything. They all are limited. And they, the UK is a nice system. It has a very clear rule, which is they're going to pay for things that are cost-effective over things that are not. What that means is, practically, um, if you're choosing between a cancer drug, two cancer drugs, they're going to pick the one that's more cost-effective than the other. But what it also means practically is if you're choosing between prenatal nutrition and vitamins to like a thousand women or cancer treatment to one person, they're gonna choose the prenatal vitamins to lots of women. Because they really look at it at a population level, not just in cancer, but in all diseases. So to one degree, I do think that sometimes the right way to compare countries is not cancer outcomes, because they've already conceded we're willing to let some cancer outcomes get worse if we can save more lives from other diseases. That's like their, that's their premise. So to some degree, I think it's like dollar per, or like, you know, do, GDP per capita on healthcare and health outcomes, infant mortality and life expectancy. And they all crush us. I mean, even Switzerland is the, is the second highest GDP per capita on healthcare, but their health outcomes are way better than us. And they're not even close to how much we spend. And the same thing for Germany and the UK, et cetera. So, I mean, in terms of that benchmark, they win. In terms of cancer, often, you know, arguably some diseases we have better outcomes, some diseases they have better outcomes, it's hard. The populations are very hard to compare because we're much more multiracial and stuff, and they're much more homogenous and things like that. Um, so for me, I feel like um, it's hard from population data, but one could argue that the things they're not paying for are not imatinibs, you know? I showed you that figure. The things they're not paying for, they're not even the game changer I showed you. They're things that are so much beneath that that like the bar, like it's barely moving that line up, you know? Like that example I gave you. Like they are declining things that are very, very marginal. Um, and even there, they have a hard time. So I, I do think they do a better job. And I think, we're, the last thing I said, I think we're gonna be there soon. Because like, I don't know, we're at like near 20% GDP on healthcare. No country can spend 30% GDP, 40% GDP on healthcare. I think Kaiser is wise because Kaiser, you know, Kaiser has efforts to actually, Kaiser has the incentives line up in the right direction to actually try to control costs in the long haul. But private insurers don't and, and academic centers certainly don't. And I think like no, Rome fell when half the days in the Roman city were holiday. And this country will fall when half of GDP is in healthcare. You know, it's like, it's unsustainable. You can't do that. So I do worry, yeah, that we're gonna have to turn it around. All right, thank you for having me. Thank you.